One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This podcast is produced on Gadigal land. One of the insidious things about sexual harassment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the workforce is that you never know the impact it's had. Did you not get that promotion or not get the room in chambers because of that? Or was it because you weren't as good as the other guy? And I think that insidiousness can really undermine your sense of self. And it certainly did for me. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. It is my pleasure to welcome to Short Black Sally Dowling SC, the first female DPP of New South Wales. Sally, does that still mean a big deal to you? Look, I think it means more to other people than it does to me. I'm very proud to be DPP and to be the first female DPP. And I'm proud of the advancements that women have made in the legal profession in New South Wales. Is it fair to say it's still a misogynist industry? No, I I wouldn't call it misogynist. But I I think there remain structural impediments for women to succeed at the highest levels in law. And what are they? Look, I think a lot of women have caring responsibilities at at a key time in their professional lives, in their 30s, and so they maybe step back from work or they work part-time. I I myself worked part-time for 14 years. And that means that their male counterparts who aren't stepping back or working a bit less, I think, progress faster. And when women are ready to lean back in when it's a good time for them, they perhaps, you know, have lost a bit of impetus or have lost that desire to do that. They've got other interests or they, they just need to catch up a little bit. Well, your role and your elevation to the position demonstrates that you can still have career success. How can you personally go about kind of changing those structural obstructions for other women? Yeah, look, I'm very much committed to ensuring that the staff in my office certainly have got options available to them and that they've got opportunities to thrive and grow, notwithstanding that they're working part-time or they've had some time off work. And that's for men and women, people of caring responsibilities. And I think by modelling that behaviour within our organisation, that necessarily permeates more broadly across the profession. And I think also by living it and being it, that is always a beacon for other people to say, well, you know, if she, if she did it, I can do it too. What's your advice to young lawyers starting out who want to end up as you? <laughs> Just keep going. Don't worry about what other people think of you. Do your best. Always do your best because you can't do anything more than that. 
act with integrity, work hard and just keep moving forward. You left high school at year 10 and then went back to TAFE to finish your HSC, essentially a mature age student really in some respects, Mm -hmm. and yet you still made it to the top. What do you think that says about you and what have you learnt from that experience? I learnt so much and I wouldn't do it differently, strangely enough. No, why not? Because I spent a bit of time in the late 80s as a young girl with no education. I moved out of home when I was um, 16 and I left school when I was 16. And I worked in hospitality and retail and I sang in a band and (laughs) (laughs) hoped to be famous. I did not have any talent in that regard. But I I lived and worked with a, a cohort of people like myself who were not on at a sandstone university on the way to being a lawyer or a doctor. And I worked with a lot of people who had English as a second language and um, were working in unstable employment. And I understood what it was like to live that life, which is very different to the life that I lead now. And that has not left me ever. I understand that instability and I understand what it's like to have your shifts dropped and I understand what it's like to have your rent put up to an amount that you can't pay or suddenly to be told that the landlord's moving back in and you've got a week's notice. Experiencing that instability of housing and employment left a a great mark on me and it has, I think, contributed to a sense of compassion that I bring to my work and which I think it is necessary for any prosecutor to have. And so I try to walk through life remembering what it's like to live a different life and have a different experience. Uh, Look, I I finished my high school certificate but took some time off as well and really came back as a mature age student and I felt like that gave me an edge really and yet uh, a lot of those who are mature age students wonder if they've left it all too late and clearly not the case. Oh, absolutely not. And you bring... You bring that experience to your studies and to your second profession or your second you know, career and you absolutely have a, a depth and a breadth of experience that you don't have if you're just coming straight through school. Often in this podcast we see things through the prism of gender and that's kind of our role because we're here to elevate ordinary women doing extraordinary things such as yourself. But you would have so many women in law who look to you for someone who succeeded and overcome a number of barriers. Is gender still a significant issue in your industry? Yeah, look, it is. I think it would be naive to deny that. I started life as a commercial lawyer and then I've been practising in the criminal law you know, for a long time now, for 20, over 20 years. I think in the criminal law sphere, there is a much, much better gender equity and representation of women. My understanding is in the commercial sphere, it is not like that at all. And I I see my female colleagues at the commercial bar and they are fewer in number and the type of work they get is different. And it is well recognised that their daily rates are lower than their male counterparts. And that is the market, they are responding to the market in that regard. So I think in the non-government dominated areas of law, in private practice, there is still a long way to go. What do you think needs to change? Attitudes. (laughs) (laughs) There are some, you know, there are the, the, the myth, the stereotype, the stereotypical 
image of a commercial lawyer is a very aggressive man who's going to work all night. Have a support structure. Yeah, that's right. Take no prisoners. And, you know, when you unpack that a bit, you can't work all night if you've got kids or an ageing parent or you need to, you know, do all the washing and the cooking. So that stereotypical image, which I think is alive with many of the clients, is one that's really hard to budge and it it really is not a realistic stereotype at all. When you move from, say, commercial and other law into criminal, what was the biggest hurdle, do you recall? Oh, look, it was a very steep learning curve, you know, perpendicular, actually. There's a lot of arcane procedural law, actually, that was very hard to to transition across to that. So just the language was different and the processes were different. The great part about it and the reason that I love practising in criminal law, though, is the people and the fact that you're dealing with real people's lives and stories and the interaction with people rather than corporations. (laughs) But some of the cases are pretty extreme and the fallout and impact of those cases at times is pretty tough on everyone involved. Have you found that yourself? Oh, absolutely. We deal with, at the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions, we prosecute all serious indictable crime in New South Wales, so that's all of the most serious physical crimes and offences of violence, murder, all sorts of homicides, sexual assault, child sexual assault. And we're dealing with people at their most traumatised, families who've lost loved ones, people who've been very you know, badly offended against, an accused person who may be facing many, many years in jail. So everything is very raw all the time in every case. So navigating that without taking it on board personally is is quite challenging and that's a big challenge for my organisation is to support our staff to not become vicariously traumatised themselves. We never take away any of the trauma from the victims themselves but those at the bar, as you say, have to take it on as well. What measures do you need to take and have there been any measures implemented to support the legal profession in, in dealing with really heavy traumatic cases? Absolutely. I'm proud to say that our organisation is a forerunner in this area and the the Bar Association of New South Wales is also doing really good work. So we have compulsory vicarious trauma training for all of our staff um, on how to recognise it in yourself, how to recognise it in a colleague. We have mental health first aiders throughout our organisation who've got special training in order to provide peer support and to be a sort of a canary in the coal mine. We have an employee assistance program. So we have six free psychological counselling sessions a year for staff and more if needed. We have an annual psych check-in and I'm just about, I've just piloted a scheme of mandatory debriefing, which I think I'm going to roll out across the organisation. What does that entail? That's a one-on-one hour session with a psychologist every three months where the lawyer can talk about whatever they want, really. And it's interestingly, a lot of the discussion, I'm told, has been about managing workload rather than the content of the cases. But that's made me understand that staff do need time to to debrief themselves and and however you know or to decompress themselves whether that's by sport sleeping spending time with family you can handle these intense cases a lot better if you've got a bit of breathing time 
Intense is really an understatement in terms of your profession. <laughs> I mean, you do really work at the sharp end of really community, you know, with the really ugly side of humankind. For those that don't understand what your role is, what is the role of the Director of Public Prosecutions in any state? So the role of the DPP is to institute and maintain criminal proceedings on behalf of the people of the state. So I act on behalf of the Attorney-General and the people of the state of New South Wales. So a criminal proceedings, well, it starts off with the offending, then there is a police investigation, police will lay the charges and if it's of a particular level of seriousness, that matter will then come to the DPP. And we take over the proceedings from the police and we then prosecute with the police assistance in putting that case together. So approximately 70% of matters plead guilty. The other sort of 30% will go to trial and we will run those trials and we'll appear in the sentences and uh, if there is an appeal arising from either of those, we'll appear on the appeal. Not to undermine any one role in this collaboration, but there must have been times where you would have looked at the police work and thought it's lacking or you might have been directed by the Attorney General and thought this is political. Dealing with the second one first, I'm an independent statutory appointment and my office is independent and I have never experienced any political pressure or interference, I'm pleased to say. And I'm not aware of, of my predecessors either ex experiencing that, which is you know, the, the system working the way it's meant to. So you're saying you have complete independence and autonomy? Yes, and that's a key that is a critical aspect of the criminal justice system in a developed democracy. Why so, for those that don't appreciate why that's so important? Because the DPP has to have the ability, potentially, to prosecute the government, members of the government. And in fact, there are some high-profile prosecutions currently underway with members of parliament. So the DPP has to be able to act independently, autonomously and free from any type of interference. At times, though, that's got to be a pretty sticky wicket. Oh, it, you know, it can be a lonely place sometimes, mm. yeah. Currently in Australia, we know only too well, and I read it on the news all the time, you know, the scourge of domestic violence and, of course, sexual assaults against women. Without commenting specifically on the Brittany Higgins case... Can you appreciate that a lot of women, as a result of, for example, the high-profile nature of that case, that they would not necessarily be confident in coming forward with a sexual harassment case or a rape claim, for example, and that it would be handled, you know, the way most of us think it should be? Absolutely. And I have to say the media scrutiny on that case, and that I'm not attributing blame to anyone or any media organisation or anyone in that entire situation but it must have had a chilling effect on anybody who was thinking of coming forward. How does that make you feel though as someone that tries to constantly build confidence in the judicial system at least in New South Wales and young women are you know constant victims of sexual assault and violence and domestic violence how do we instill confidence in young women to come forward and speak up and give them the confidence that they're going to be treated fairly yeah, well, I mean, I feel disheartened to answer your first question, but I think we just keep going. We have to show that people who report serious crime will be listened to, will be treated with compassion, will be treated fairly, 
and respectfully. We have a very robust judicial process and the rights of the accused in that process are critically important too. So we have the interests of the complainant in the community and then we also have the rights of the accused. And you know, often there's a really, really significant tension there, but it is possible to respect both those positions and get a fair outcome. I saw a headline recently discussing sexual assault cases and rape cases, etc. And the headline was still, why did she wear that? I despaired because as a woman, I think, really, are we still being accused of that in the 20s, like today? And yet it's still happening. Yeah, look, so there's some research that was just released, commissioned by the Bureau of Crime Statistics, which was conducted by Professor Julia Coulter from the University of Wollongong, which was looking at the prevalence of rape myths in current prosecutions, particularly in light of some really significant legislative changes that have happened in the last couple of years about the law of consent and the type of directions that juries get in sexual assault cases. And um, very concerningly, this research suggests that rape myths, you know, that you, if you're actually sexually assaulted, you're going to fight back, that you're going to scream, that, you know, that a true victim isn't wearing type of clothing or that, you know, if you're intoxicated, you're somehow responsible that those myths are, are still alive and well and being rolled out in courtrooms across New South Wales. You know, so that is something that I think the judiciary and the profession need to, we need to engage with that research and we need to recognise it and we need to, to be astute to call it out when those myths start creeping into the cross-examination or the way that you're engaging with, with a victim in a sexual assault case. On that then, how do you educate or remind your team to have their radar up and alert when those sorts of ageist old tropes are rolled out? Yeah, we do a lot of continuing professional development with our staff. So we are constantly, you know, that particular research has been the subject of some presentations within the office and the the full paper has just been made available to our staff. So Reminding our prosecutors of these things, um, saying, you know, when you get that line of questioning, it's, it's appropriate for you to object and to point out that it's playing into these stereotypes. And I think that there is an avenue there for judicial education as well, so that the judges who are, you know, the umpires in the courtroom are also, you know, tuned in to picking up those types of questions and those stereotypes. It does take a lot of courage to call something out amongst your peers or your friendship groups, but you're someone that knows that only too well on a personal level. Your first day at the New South Wales Bar, a senior barrister who has now since deceased, actually put his hand up your skirt. Yeah, it wasn't a great introduction to the bar. And four days later, he made an unwelcome physical contact again. Yeah. Now, you called it out, but you were the only woman among 30 men at the chambers at the time. It's been reported that you are pretty shaken by the event but you immediately reported the first incident to the senior barrister in the chambers. What was the response? Look, the response was supportive. So I, I reported the first one to the senior barrister, who was my mentor, who is a really great guy, and he was outraged and shocked, and he said, leave it with me. And then the second time I reported again, and then we both went to see the, the head of chambers, who was also outraged and you know furious. Did they do anything? I don't know what they did. It stopped. So I assume 
that they did do something. But, you know, I reflect on best practice in complaint management and that wasn't it back in 1997. So I never heard anything more. The behaviour stopped, but there was never, of course, an apology or anything like that or any further acknowledgement. Were you worried at the time about what sort of impact it might have on your career? Because you were just starting out. Yeah, yeah, I was. And um, you never know. uh, One of the insidious things about sexual harassment in the workforce is that you never know the impact it's had. Did you not get that promotion or not get the room in chambers because of that? Or was it because you weren't as good as the other guy? And I think that insidiousness can really undermine your sense of self. And it certainly did for me. And when you apply for a permanent position in those chambers, you missed out. And that's what you're referring to, is you don't really know whether that played a part. Yeah. I mean, the person that got the room was really great. So maybe it was a a decision on merit. In hindsight, would you have done it exactly the same way? Or what would you do differently now that you have experience and maturity under your belt? Look, there were no options back then. There were no senior women in those chambers. There were no formal complaints policies. There wasn't an anti-discrimination or anti-harassment policy at the bar. So I would do it the same way because that's the way I roll. I don't compromise on things like that. So I don't regret that. But I'm pleased to say that the bar now is a very different place. And I think, you know, if I was a young barrister now and I experienced that, which I don't really think that I would, I'm pretty confident that that would be handled in a, in a really professional and transparent way. Another key area and another key focus for you is our Indigenous Australians and I guess the violence that's perpetrated against, in particular, women and children. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so just as Aboriginal Australians are overrepresented in the, in the prison system, they are also equally overrepresented as victims of crime. Almost 20% of our complainants that come through our office are of First Nations background. They have particular cultural needs and they have particular background that may not be well understood by the broader community. And we see, you know, in New South Wales, we have a really, really broad diversity of, of Aboriginal people. We've got families and communities who are very urban. We've got families and communities who are living in rural and remote and regional communities. The way in which Aboriginal complainants interact with the criminal justice system is very complex and for many there is a great deal of fear. There's a a great deal of fear involved in going to the police. There is a fear of the welfare and the, the memories of the stolen generation are very, very resonant in those communities. There is a very high rate of child removal still amongst Aboriginal families and that plays into the fear that those families have particularly when reporting domestic violence offending. And the removal is driven by the agencies because of the fear of harm. So we're not talking stolen generations, but through their eyes, it's being re-perpetrated. Absolutely. They're children being taken away from families. And the bottom line is the same. So we find that a really significant barrier to reporting 
and also to the continuation of prosecutions in those communities. And one of the things that I am working on and which I'm absolutely dedicated to improving is the experience of Indigenous complainants when they do interact with the Office of Public Prosecutions. What changes are you making? It's hard. It's, yeah. re- it's really hard. It's almost an intransigent problem. But if we consider that there's no solution, there won't be one. We've got to come up with some. Absolutely. And there are solutions. So the first and I think very, very basic thing that I am doing is we have cultural awareness training for all of our staff. I've rolled that out across the organisation and you know every time we have someone new onboarded, they have to undergo that training. So that gives a very basic level of understanding of these issues. We then have, I mentioned before, we have our witness assistance service. We have seven, soon to be 12, dedicated Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander witness assistance officers who work with our Aboriginal complainants. We have developed training on communicating effectively with Aboriginal witnesses and I'm rolling that out as mandatory training across the organisation as well. We've also got multiple initiatives to improve our community engagement, particularly with rural communities, working with the Aboriginal community liaison officers of New South Wales Police and um, working with the judiciary to start a conversation about whether there are formal legislative or policy reforms that we can make to better reflect the needs of Aboriginal people in the criminal justice system. There's a lot of work that's been done with Aboriginal offenders and those principles apply equally to Aboriginal victims of crime. I can't imagine getting my head around how complex a problem that is and the differences between dealing with that in, say, Sydney as opposed to Tamworth. Yeah, yeah. And how do you straddle that divide? Look, as with every successful strategy, it has to be community-led and it has to be developed for the particular group of people. So what works in Sydney isn't going to work in Moree. So we have a First Nations advisory board that we've just set up for ODPP that is helping guide our strategies on how to engage respectfully and appropriately with local communities because a lot of the issue is from a lack of trust, you know, a long-term, century-old lack of trust in the institutions of government in these communities. And, you know, that lack of trust is, well, you know, is not misplaced for them historically. So rebuilding that trust is not something you can do overnight. And you can't do it with a slogan or a policy. It's about building relationships on the ground so that when things do go wrong in those communities, there's a trust there to go to the police and a trust to continue with the prosecution. It's a well-identified problem, but what I get a sense from you is that it's also a personal passion. Absolutely. I do this job because I care about the victims of crime that I work with, and it has been a a dawning realisation for me that this is a deficit in our criminal justice system, and it's one which my office is particularly and uniquely placed to address. So it's something that... I feel that I can improve on and I'm absolutely dedicated to doing that. Given the current scenarios that are playing out in the media and across the Australian landscape, can you understand why the Australian public have lost a bit of confidence perhaps in the judicial system? 
Look, I, I think the public is entitled to demand the best from their institutions and I embrace that and I think public scrutiny and transparency are critical for the, the good functioning of the institutions of government. In a system that is overloaded and perhaps underfunded and under a lot of pressure, there are mistakes made and there are particular cases where we can all agree things should have been done differently and could have been done better. I think it's appropriate and healthy for us to scrutinise those and for there to be public disapprobation. So those cases, I think we have to learn from, we have to embrace that process and not be frightened of that scrutiny. However, my experience is that the enormous, overwhelming majority of participants in the criminal justice system are highly ethical, hardworking people who are trying to do their best. doesn't mean they can't do better, and that's what we're all striving for. This is not a loaded question, but I feel compelled to ask, what's your view of the media and its role in justice or obtaining justice? I think the media plays a really important role in progressing issues and we've seen that in a lot of different ways. Sometimes I think the true crime podcasts can become quite problematic for the criminal justice system. How so? There is the potential to contaminate evidence. There is the potential for the perception that things are being you know, media-driven and that may or may not be a bad thing. Sometimes we do need to have another look at a particular matter and you know, particularly if a decision was made some time ago, it may be necessary to re-examine that. But I think it is important that the police and the prosecution don't feel pressured to respond to media hue and cry but rather just get on with methodically doing the right principled thing. In the current environment, there's media and then there's social media. What steps do you take to mitigate the influence of social media? Because on any case, there's traditional forms of media and then there's a whole other conversation happening in a sidebar, in a tangential world on social media that can be blowing all the traditional principles of how you manage a case or what can or can't be said. They're blown out of the water. Yeah, look, and it is a real challenge with jury trials. As you know, juries are directed not to have regard to any media in the course of the trial. Um, but I think that is very, very difficult for individual jurors and for the court system. And we've, we have a steady stream of trials that are bought because of you know, what's called juror misconduct, but it is you know, really kind of human nature in clicking on that link in the Facebook feed mm. that's relevant to the matter. So that is a, a really significant challenge, making sure that jurors aren't getting information that is external to the prosecution and acting according to that. The other area that we really see it in is the proliferation of electronic material in every case and in particularly in sexual assault cases. We get everybody's phones and there are chats and videos and images and the whole gamut of social media material is on the phone of the accused and the phone of the complainant and that poses an enormous challenge for investigators and for prosecutors and, and also for, for defence lawyers. But also a new insight and a body of evidence that arguably wasn't available before the introduction of mobile phones. I mean I recently interviewed a forensic psychologist from the series Hunted 
And um, Dr. Carla Lopez was saying, you know, the biggest tracking device we all carry every day is our phone. Absolutely. It's, it's an enormous quantity of material that was never available. What sort of advice would you give to people who are listening today about how much they put out there, how much they keep on their phone? Is that something you manage and are conscious of yourself every day? I have a surprisingly boring life. (laughs) (laughs) Look, you know, yes, your phone has got your whole life. You know, an analogy is in the old days, you'd execute a search warrant and you'd go, the police would go into somebody's house and they'd take the things that, that looked relevant. But now they take the whole house because that's what your phone is. It's got every photograph. It's got every conversation. It's got every email. It's got every bill you've paid or your banking records. So the amount of personal information that is on your phone is remarkable. I mean, we all know it, and yet we're still somehow surprised about how incriminating your own personal devices can be. I look back at your career, and one of the things you've done was you were on the Racing Appeals Tribunal for New South Wales, and arguably it might be unconventional or unusual for someone to be in a position like that, but you've got a background in racing that I'd love you to talk about, which some people may be unaware of. (laughs) Yeah, one of my first jobs was as a bookies clerk um, back in the 90s before the internet when I had to race, I had to run the odds in off the rails to the bookie that I worked for who had a concession inside the members stand at Randwick. And I've always, I've always ridden horses and loved horses. So I did work at the track back in the 90s and then I've continued to ride horses and be involved in horses. And so then when I was at the, yeah, I was the Crown Prosecutor when I was appointed to the Racing Appeals Tribunal. So it was nice to, to get back into a, a world that I had that long, long familiarity with. Was it something you chased or was it something that came about because they were aware of your background? I mean, to, to work in that world, you have to really, A, be really good at numbers and understand racing. Which is really weird because I'm actually very poor at numbers. I'm quite innumerate, but <laughs> I've got a good memory. So, no, I was recruited as a bookies clerk when I was, I was waitressing and I was remembering a lot of stuff. So that's how I got that job. And then I responded to an ad for the, for the membership of the Racing Appeals Tribunal. When we look at DPPs across the country, you're one of the few females in that role. What's your engagement like with other DPPs around the country? Yeah, it's really strong, actually. We have a network called the Council of Australian Directors, which is the perhaps unfortunate acronym of CADS. Um, <laughs> and we, we meet every six months around the country. We also meet with the New Zealand prosecutors. And that's a really important forum for us to get together and discuss common challenges and also to, to share our resources because some, some of the departments of public prosecution around the country are quite small. You know, Tasmania is a small jurisdiction, as is the Northern Territory. So it's great to be able to share resources, share people, and also just to have a peer support network. You would see every day in your role how the disadvantaged really do it. Not tough just in principle, but they're behind the eight ball when it comes to the justice system because there may be a lack of education and awareness and an understanding of of what they're about to go through. Is there a role in assisting the more disadvantaged in in our society in preparing them for the justice system? Oh, absolutely. Whether they're a perpetrator or an innocent victim, it's still daunting for anyone. Yeah. One point to make is that 
often the communities from which the, the victims and perpetrators come from are the same communities. And so we're often talking about the same people. The perpetrator was once a victim. The victim can become a perpetrator. So the principles apply equally. And yes, you're completely correct. We work predominantly with disadvantaged members of the community and we work with a lot of vulnerable people, people who are vulnerable by reason of their experience, cognitive impairment, their background, their exposure to trauma, to drugs and alcohol. We offer a lot of training for our staff in how to help vulnerable people navigate the criminal justice system. And we do a lot of work also with New South Wales Police in supporting those people to be able to come and tell their story before the judge or before the judge and jury. At ODPP, we have a witness assistance service, which is 55 trained counsellors. They're generally social workers, come from a social work background. And their sole job is to support and assist victims of crime and families of victims of crime to navigate the system. And they are a fantastic resource. They are absolute angels in our organisation who reach out, support and maintain a, a supportive relationship with people who are, who are very, very vulnerable and you know, pretty much at their lowest ebb. I can't imagine what it's like for anyone who comes before the judicial system trying to sort of navigate it through and feel confident that justice is on their side. What would you say to those listening who maybe going through something or a family member, and they're not necessarily confident that the process will play out. Yeah, look, we do our best to support victims of crime, to ensure that their voices are heard, that they are treated with dignity and that they are treated with compassion and that they can achieve justice and the community can achieve justice because justice is much more than the rights between the two people involved in the crime. There is a public interest in having this behaviour brought to light and you know, having that condemnation of, and in particular, violent behaviours or antisocial behaviours. So there is a community interest in that. It can be tough being a victim of crime and going through the trial process. There's, there's no way to avoid that recognition of that fact. So we at ODPP and also the New South Wales Police in particular do try our best to support victims through that process by explaining what's going to happen to them, making sure we're communicating effectively and calmly and in nice timely fashion so people can reflect on things, don't have to feel rushed when they're making decisions and we try to support them through that process. Who's Sally Dowling when she's not DPP for New South Wales? <laughs> Mum of three? Mum of three. Racing enthusiast? <laughs> equine nut? Yes, yeah. I'm, I'm, I've got way too many animals. I've got three whippets and a very old cat and a bunch of horses. And I really enjoy being with my family, with my pets, outdoors. For someone who loves the racing industry, that's me. And for someone who appreciates the racing industry, that's you. What do you say every time, for example, the Melbourne Cup comes around and you've got those that believe the racing industry is um, cool? Do you agree? I think there can be improvements made. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What needs to happen? Well, I mean, I think the rehoming of retired racehorses is a particularly important 
imperative. There are way, way too many animals being born every year to race and we know that they're going to be access to requirements. I've got three retired racehorses, who, none of whom were, it had any talent at all on the track. So recognising that and making sure that there are viable pathways for those animals when they retire or when they don't succeed. And look, you know, I think just keeping that pressure and scrutiny on the trainers and on the stables and on the industry to keep its game clean. Well, there's no more pressure, I think, in the public discourse at the moment than on the Australian justice system, given all the high-profile cases. Does it give you confidence for those coming out of university with a law degree that they will pursue a career such as yours and chase it without fear of the public backlash, which is pretty constant at the moment? Yeah, look, I, I hope so. I think the personalisation of roles in government is not a positive trend. I think it can be daunting and I think this probably is something that affects women who think, you know, I don't perhaps want to have that high profile life. I don't want to be attacked for doing my job. I hope that that isn't a deterrent to young lawyers. You know, what I would say to men or women graduating from law school is that a life in the criminal justice system, and, you know, I speak as a prosecutor, is endlessly fascinating and endlessly rewarding. Every day I come home and I think, I've done something really important for somebody in their life. I've done something good for my community. I've been completely fascinated intellectually and it's a very rewarding career. Well, Sally Dowling, we congratulate you on your success and the leadership role you take in your job. We'll watch on with interest as uh, you continue to succeed. Thanks so much for spending some time with us here at Short Black. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to Short Black, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.